If you want to open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians, we'll be looking there in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to bear with me this afternoon because not only was I not aware that I was going to be preaching this afternoon, but as I shared with those of us at lunch, I cleaned up 10 pounds of sawdust out of our basement. Only 8 pounds of that made it in the trash can. The other two ended up in my lungs, I believe. And so I'm having a hard time not coughing as I talk. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, I want to spend some time looking at what Paul is doing, addressing the church there, and addressing them for particularly childish behavior. Earlier in the letter, Paul confronts them about man's wisdom, and he talks about how it was absolutely not the end-all, be-all source of power of the universe, but rather Paul says that only God's wisdom is, is, that, uh, is that of superiority. And everything else is caught up by His wisdom in its own snares. And so in chapter 2, verse 9, He says, "...Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him." Verse 16 of chapter 2, He says, "...For who has known the mind of the Lord, that He may instruct Him?" And later on, He's going to tell them in verses 19-20 through 20, that worldly wisdom is just downright foolishness of God. He says that he would catch the wise in their craftiness and he knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And, and we need to understand what Paul's doing in these verses. Paul is quoting. He's quoting Old Testament Scripture to these people. And sometimes I think we can get in the, the situation where we look at the Corinthian church and we'll just kind of scroll over to chapter 6 and go, those guys were terrible. And just wag our heads at them and just think about how much better we are than them today. We really shouldn't read this letter to the Corinthians as if we're somehow superior to them because this letter is meant for us to learn from their chastisement as well. This is a congregation full of Bible students. I wonder how many of us today, I know myself, if I didn't have the little footnotes in the bottom of a Bible, probably couldn't tell you where those quotations were from. But they knew Scripture. They didn't have the Bible like we have today, but they had Scripture and they knew it. This is a congregation that's filled with spiritual gifts. It's abounding more so than probably many of the other congregations around them. And so for the most part, when we look at this, we say these guys know the Word of God. We see the, the Word of God working in their lives. This is actually a really good, well-rounded bunch of Christians, but they've got a very serious problem. And Paul sees that problem at Corinth. The problem isn't, is not what we're sometimes tempted to think. We think the problem was they were having preacheritis. They were fighting over who's better, a Paul or Apollos or, or Cephas or, or Christus. Who, who's the best one? And they're, they're making statements like, well, I align myself. I follow after Paul. Well, me, I follow after Apollos. But verse 3 <clears throat> Verse 3 tells us that had a very significant impact on them. It says that there was envy there, there's strife and division going on. These things, these attitudes, they had permeated, permeated the thoughts and words and actions of this group. They were consumed. And all this had led to this division of the church. And, and, and we can learn so much from the congregation at Corinth. But what we need to learn is that's not the problem. The problem here, and the... the the lesson is, is that we're going to talk about this afternoon has a lot to do with Paul's going to say to answer this problem. The problem is not we can't get an agreement situated over who should be our preacher, who should be the, uh, the one that we're following after. These are symptoms of the problem. 
The problem was they needed to refocus. They had allowed their vision, they had allowed their hearts and thoughts to be dragged away from, from, from God into a culture that said, this teacher over here is the teacher you follow. While the other cult- part of the culture said, no, no, we hold to this teacher. The culture that said, whoever pays the most is the one that, that gets to, to play the most. He's the one that gets to pay the biggest part. A culture that said men can be whatever they want to be and women can be whatever they want to be. Throughout the book of Corinthians, he is telling them, draw your focus away from the culture around you and place it back on God. To do this, he's going to stress two very important truths for the Christian. He's going to stress that God is in control, that God gets the glory. The work that's going on is building up God's church and God's temple. I want to read together these first couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 15. He said, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer a loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Paul is striving to bring a big, big lesson. And all of that begins back over in verse 3 when he says, uh, when he talks to them saying, you are, uh, For since there is jealousy strife among you, are you not fleshly? Or are you not walking like mere men? And he's going to draw that to their minds. That's what we are. We're merely men. And you guys have allowed your, your, your vision to be pulled away from what matters to focus on things that are far, far less important. And so he begins by showing them who it is that's actually in control. First he asks this question. He says, who is Paul? And who is Apollos? In verse 5. Now that's a powerful question to ask anyone who stands in a place of authority. And in this case, he's talking about men who are preaching to the congregation. He says, who are these guys anyway? Really, tell me, who am I? Who is Apollos? That's also a really important question for us to ask anyone that stands in a place of authority for us, whether it be a teacher or an employer, even the President of the United States. We ask ourselves, really, who is this person in the grand scheme of things? And especially if that person is standing against us, bringing persecution on us, we need to be reminded constantly, over and over again, this person's relationship to the Almighty God. Who's in control? That's the point that he's bringing up here. Someone, maybe someone is persecuting us and it can cause us, uh, as, the, as the early church had to deal with it, it can cause us to be, to, to be taken aback in our faith. Say maybe it'd be a whole lot easier because I know that a, a loved one maybe or maybe an employer saying, listen, if you're going to act like that, if you're going to believe those things, uh, you can't work here. And so you just need to keep your mouth shut. You don't, you don't act like that. You don't talk like that. And you try to fit in with us. 
whenever you're here at this place on our dime, it can be real easy for us to go, well, you know what? They're in control. They're the ones paying my checks. And Paul's saying, listen, if you will do this for your preacher, you need to, you'll do this for anybody. You need to broaden your horizon a little bit and say, who is it that's actually the one that I need to be concerned with? And in Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So like with Paul and Apollos, they were, they were teaching and they were preaching the message of God. What they're saying is we're not better than what we're preaching. The message, in fact, is better than us. He describes themselves in that passage. He says, you know what we are? We're servants of that message. Now I want you to think about servants today. How many people, how many of our kids have come up to us and we said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? So, oh, I want to be a, an astronaut. I want to be a scientist. I want to be a, a, a code designer for video games. I'll let you guess who came up with that one. How many of them said, I want to be a janitor. I want to be a servant. I want to be someone that, that, that brings people their food. How many of them had aspirations for that? If anyone does, I'm not knocking that in any sort of way. But what I'm saying is we don't typically look at that as, a, as like, that's really what I want to do. And yet Paul says that's exactly what we are. He says, we are diakonos. One who executes the commands of a master. In other words, I'm a slave. I am a servant of God. Now just like in our day, that's not something to brag about. Even worse so in that day, that's saying I'm nothing. I have no value. I have, I have no uh, inherent design that can bring in my society something of, of produce. It's like this is disrespect. That's what I am. I'm a disrespected part of cultural hierarchy. And you're arguing over which one of us is better and which one you're going to belong to. He's squashing this argument. And he's demonstrating that because this is who we are, you're fighting over will you be a Pauline or, or will you follow Apollos? And you're doing that based upon results. He's saying we have different roles. I planted, Apollos watered. If you think for any second that I'm the one that deserves the credit or Apollos is the one who deserves the credit, you're fooled. Anyone who's ever planted a garden before knows that. You, you can't go out and, and plant your crops and then just go back and say, well, I'm never going to water them again. They'll be fine. They'll eventually grow. They're going to die. At the same time, you can't go out and just pour water on a spot of land and expect corn to grow up out of it either. He says, if you think that because I planted or Apollos watered, somehow that makes one of us better than the other, it just makes us different. It just makes us different. But what they need to realize is you don't get a detailed description. Now, I think that's interesting. He doesn't go in and say, this is how I planted, and this is everything is involved, and this is everything involved with Apollos watering. He says, you don't need a detailed description as to what each one of us does and how they're equal. What you need to know is there's something greater than both of us. And he points in verse 6 that God is the reason that seeding the plant and watering it is effective. In verse 7, he says those who plant and those who water, they're nothing. So now, how has he described himself so far? He says, me and Apollos were servants. Me and Apollos were nothing. You have got your mind in the wrong place when you're fighting over who you're going to belong to. Look to God. Belong to Him. This is certainly not to say that they were not necessary. Again, we go back to the original question 
Who is Paul and Apollos? They are very important to the kingdom. They are very important to the work, but they are nothing compared to God. Now, I think probably at least one time in the time that I've been here, I've heard Richard refer to this this Pastor Bob. I think he's maybe mentioned that once, maybe twice. Uh, And he references this guy as someone who, who... metaphorically fits everyone who looks to some preacher or or Bible class teacher or religious authority in their life and and they say, whatever they say, I'm going to go with it. Whatever Pastor Bob says, I'm going to just follow right along. We need to answer this question. We say, who is this person? Who is Pastor Bob? Who is Kyle Blevins? Who is our parents? Who Who is whatever that religious authority is in our life? Who are they? And every time, the answer needs to be nobody. Nobody compared to God. He deserves the glory. Instead of fighting and choosing sides, Christians at Corinth, Christians today need to look to God and say, there's really only one true party. There's not this big division of identities. We are one in Christ. God is the one that is important, and that's the one that we will belong to. But again, that's only half the lesson. Because as I said, he's bringing two points out of this. Not only does God deserve the glory... See, God also deserves and controls the harvest. Let's be clear about what the division was going on here. They weren't divided over errors. It wasn't that Paul was preaching something and Apollos was preaching against it, and they're picking sides as to which one's more scriptural. In fact, I believe Paul and Apollos would both argue to say we need to stick to the truth, and if any time any one of us brings a different gospel, we need to be accursed. But that's not what's happening here. They're both teaching the same gospel. Their teaching was united, but it had a different cause in them that was bringing about this fighting. Apollos, when you think about who he was, back in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, they note Apollos is this bold, eloquent speaker, but Paul, in his own admission, says, that's not me. I didn't come to you in excellent speech or in wisdom. I came to you in weakness and in fear and trembling. I didn't use persuasive words. There's no doubt that this is where maybe some of the dispute arose. Some people looked at Apollos and said, well, look at that guy. Certainly, that's a better one to follow. In fact, as you continue through the book of Corinthians, they're basically arguing Paul really may not even be an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've got problems with that because we're looking at your life and surely someone who belongs to the King Jesus can't go through the things that you're going through can't suffer the way that you're going through. And so he's going to have to repeatedly point to them and say, that's what Jesus did was suffer. And if that's what suffering looks like in our King, why would His servants not look the same way? So they may have been looking at this and saying, Apollos, you know what? He's a better speaker. He's more effective. We want to be like Apollos. While others may have looked at Paul and said, you know what? He speaks the truth and he speaks it plain. There's no place for all that fancy talk that Apollos is over there, over there doing. I like a preacher that just, just speaks to me from the Scripture. Paul again is pointing out that it's not about presentation. It's not about the eloquency of the words that cause the increase of fighting over those things. That's, that's, that's pointless, it's immature, and it's not helpful for the church. God is the one that's in control of the increase. And so, why do you think, why do you think that that's an important lesson for them? Why do you think that that's an important lesson for us? I believe that's an important lesson for us today is because we need to realize the work that we are called to do is building up the kingdom. Building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so many times we think, I cannot be effective. Have you ever thought, I don't know what the right thing to say is in this situation? 
I don't know how I can help this person to, to come to God. I don't know how I can help this person to see their needs. I'm not a very good speaker. I get nervous. I get all tongue-tied. Uh, I have panic attacks. I don't know what I can do. What we need to learn from all of this is that our, our ability to give even a single bit of increase is not within us. I, myself, am not able to, to bring people to Christ. It's God that is doing that. God is in control. Does that mean that I don't do anything? Of course not. No, of course that's not what that means. But that means that maybe if I can't speak all that well, but you know what? I can serve in some way. I can mow a yard. I can bake a dish. I can change a tire. I can do something, whatever it is, whatever my ability is, to go out and do it and give God the glory for it so that others might see Him in me. But rather on the other end of the spectrum is this argument. Maybe someone says, I don't think that it will do any good to speak the message to that person. I don't think that that person's going to listen whenever I speak. No matter how well I speak it, I don't think they're going to receive it very well. That kind of thinking is exactly where the Corinthians are also involved in. They're focused on planting and watering, but had neglected the power of what it was they were planting and watering. They had neglected the seed. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I imagine that every one of us here probably believes that passage. But I also believe that we struggle with that passage. We struggle to live that out in our lives when, we're, when we withhold the truth because we're afraid maybe the reaction somebody might give us. I can't say it in the right way, so they're probably not going to respond correctly. They're probably not going to hear what I'm going to say, or maybe they're, they're just not ready to hear it in their lives. Whatever the circumstances are, they're just, I don't feel like they're right, and so I'm not going to do anything. Paul is teaching the Corinthians that's not your decision. God gives the increase. God is in control. It's His seed. The seed comes from Him. He simply asks you as a, as a servant of Christ to go and plant that in somebody else's heart. To go and water their lives with the grace and mercy that flows from Him. And let Him be in control of what He's always been in control with. Harvest. Growth. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful. Jude chapter 1 Jude verse 22 and 23, he makes a point that, you know what, there's no cookie cutter approach to, to bringing souls to Christ. Whenever, when he talks about this, Jude chapter, uh, in verse 22, he talks about the different ways that some people are re are, have to be reached. He says, on have, and on some having mercy, having mercy on some who are doubting, saving others, snatching them out of the fire on some. Have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. He says there's different ways. Different people need to be approached different ways. But we mustn't ever be afraid to speak the truth. We mustn't ever be afraid of the reaction of the world around us. And we should start trusting not in the, the voice, not in the vehicle in which God's grace is communicated to the world around us, but in the very grace and mercy of God in His power to save the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God has not given us a spirit of fear, of timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. We need not be afraid. We need not be people who, who fear because circumstances aren't, aren't what we, we think they should be. Because our own abilities aren't what we think that is best for this situation. Or because the ability of somebody else is, is not what we think it should be. 
We need to remind ourselves of that next time we have these fears and start remembering this doesn't come from God. God has given us power. I love that Greek word. It's dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamic and dynamite. God has given us the power to save lives in His Word. And He's left that in our care to say, go out and tell others. We need to step back and see that just like the Corinthians, God God is in control. He deserves all glory and we can trust in His power to save. And when we have that mindset, we can begin focusing on Paul's second point to these Corinthian people now. When he's got them thinking back on this same sort of wavelength, he's saying, so your purpose then, if it's to work, it is to work to build up, not to tear down, not to destroy. And that's what they were doing. They were determined to say, I am the one that's right here. Paul is better than Apollos. I am the one that is correct. And in the minds, and with that mindset involved, they're destroying their brothers and sisters around them. It's no wonder Paul calls them and says, you're carnal. And then tearing each other down, you're, you have a very carnal mindset. A very worldly mindset. As if, as if you haven't been transformed by Christ out of the world, but you're acting just like the world you live in. In verse 9, he says these things, they are not meant to be divisions. You are not meant to be divided you were meant to be united under God. Instead of saying, I am of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm going to follow this guy or that guy, why don't you say, I'm part of God's field, part of God's building. And a building is not made up of one brick. A building is made up of, of, of hundreds of bricks glued and mortared together. And these people around me that I'm fighting with right now, that I have this mindset of I'm right and I've got to prove them wrong, they're the fellow members of this building. And my attitudes and my actions are destroying them. This was their charge. He says, build up that building. Verse 9, I love it. He calls himself a fellow worker with Apollos. They've already said, I'm, I'm a servant. I'm nothing. And now he says, me and Apollos, we're on the same team. It was his job to be building up the foundation. A building that's growing up in just another chapter. Verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. Paul's going to go and instruct the Corinthians, say, you know what? You know what you need to be doing? You don't need to be fighting with one another over who's best. You need to be imitating me as I imitate Christ. If I'm working to build up the temple, if I'm suffering to build up the temple, if I'm sacrificing my rights to build up the temple, why don't you do the same? You need to work to see what the temple needs and to offer it and to, to, to do what you can to build up the temple around you. And then in verses 10 through 15, I want us to think just for a second again about what those say, because Paul is going to kind of shift just a little bit here. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, I, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You know, it seems like we get to this part in chapter 3, and it's easy to go, well, wait a minute, you lost me. You lost me. We were talking about you and Apollos, how you're both servants, how God gives the increase. We need to be building. And now you're talking about actual physical building supplies and fires and things burning up and people being saved. Or not. So what's all this about, Paul? 
I was, up, I was keeping up with you until we got to this point. We're talking about the temple. We need to understand the temple in, in reference to the church today, but, but what does wood and hay and straw have to do with anything? What is gold and silver and precious, precious stones? And you know, I, I read that, and a part of me goes, that's why people liked Apollos. Because <laughs> Apollos probably didn't say things like this. Apollos probably didn't say things that led Peter to later go, Paul said some really hard things that were hard to follow. I wonder if that's not the reason. But I want us to understand this. So let's turn over to 2 Timothy for a moment. Listen to what Paul says to to Timothy in his second letter to him. 2 Timothy 2, in verse 20 through 21. He says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor are similar to what is being discussed here. Paul is is still talking about the increase which is given by God. As we build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, bring those who are lost into the fold of Christ, off the gospel of His life, there will be those who become vessels of honor, and there will be those who become vessels of dishonor. We talked about that a little bit in class this morning. If someone comes to Christ and they don't have someone to tie to, someone that they connect with, someone that holds them to the, to the church, it's not a surprise when sometimes we find those people fall away. There are those who come and they become strong, thriving Christians. And, and they offer up honorable lives to the Lord. Lives that, as, if we were describing them as Paul is here, we'd say maybe they're like a bowl that's been embroidered with gold and silver and fine jewels encrusted around it. But some come to Christ and they choose to be dishonorable. They never let go of the old man. They, they, they stay in sin. They stay in the choices of their past. And they never mature. The point is Paul is making goes all the way back to verse 8. He's saying God rewards each of us according to our own labors, not the outcome. Not the outcome of the increase. But it's so easy to look at our lives and say, I failed. My labor failed because nobody got wet. I failed because they didn't come to Christ. Or they came to Christ, but I failed because they didn't stay faithful. He says, yes, that is hard. That is painful. But in verse 8, he's saying God doesn't reward you because of the output of somebody else's life. He rewards you for your labor. Not the increase. The materials, the souls that he's describing here. The materials that we build with, they vary in quality and only time will tell. Only judgment will really truly reveal. There can be those that we think right there, that is a, I'm not trying to point at any one person, but that is a honorary Christian. That is somebody embroidered with gold and silver. Only time will truly tell. The day, the day of judgment will tell whether or not this work really will, will last through the fire. But even if our works do not endure... He says, we are still saved. No doubt, we will feel the pain. We will feel the pain of those that, that come to Christ and we work so hard to bring a message to them and they turned on that message and, and eventually turn away. Or maybe they come, but they fall away later in life. That hurts. 
When the day of judgment, the day that God comes and wipes away the tears of those who belong to Him, He says, you're not judged on the output of other people's lives. You just do the work of a servant. You just focus on God. Remember, He's in control and He's called you to just be building. He rewards you for your labor. The Corinthians, the Corinthians that this were written to were a people who were immature, they were divisive, and they were unfocused. They were, their, their eyes were all over the place looking at so, all sorts of different things. And they needed to be reminded the God that you came to, the God of heaven and earth, the God who sent His Son to die for your sins, He is sovereign. He is in control. He rules and He alone deserves glory and honor and praise. Not those who work for Him. That's not where you need to be focusing. So stop focusing on the workers and start getting involved in the working. Involved in the building up of the temple of God, the church. And the Corinthians, I've found in my life, are not that much different than me. It is easy to be unfocused. It is easy to put my eyes on somebody else's actions, somebody else's responses. We need to remember that just like them, we were once living in sin. But they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified just like we have been or we can be in the name of Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. And they were brought in to the fold of God who is in control the fold of God who is calling us just to be laborers and work. This afternoon, if you have never obeyed the Gospel of Christ, if you've never heard the message of just mere men who talked about one who was far more than a mere man, who came and gave His life so that you could be free from sin, that you could have a hope of eternal life with Him and the Father in Heaven, what we would invite you to is to look to His Word with us and to realize that we can be baptized for the remission of our sins. We can be conveyed out of this world into His kingdom, into the God who is in control and His care. Would you not follow the example of people like the Corinthians? People who had learned from Scripture. People who still had flaws, but were being taught don't take your eyes off of God. If there's something that we can do to assist you with that this afternoon, won't you please let it be known? Come forward right now as we stand and sing the song of invitation.